0: Welcome back to the Banking and Finance Oath podcast. Today, I am honoured to have special guest Julian Broadbent here with us. Hello and welcome, Jillian. Hello, Christina. So, Miss Broadbent has had a remarkable career in banking and governance. If I were to sit here and read out all her accolades one by one, that would probably fill the entire podcast. So instead, I'll name a few notable roles and accomplishments she's had over the years. Miss Broadbent boasts over 30 years of experience in banking and finance. She has been a board member of Qantas Coca-Cola, the Australian Stock Exchange and the Reserve Bank of Australia. She now serves on the board of Woolworths and Macquarie Group and is a Chancellor of the University of Wollongong. For all her contributions to the corporate and financial industry, as well as to arts, culture, clean energy and women in business, Gillian Broadbent was made a Companion of the Order of Australia in 2019. So thank you so much for your time and for joining us today for this conversation. The goal of the podcast is to talk openly about real life ethics. Can I just start by asking you, Gillian, what does ethics in banking mean to you?
1: Well, ethics means doing the right thing and having a sense of society as well as yourself. Banking is banking is the it's an essential part of the uh, economy and the business community. So, uh, one of the uh, when you say what does ethics mean in banking, it should mean the same as it means everywhere else. Except, because banking has uh, such capacity to influence people financially and businesses and perspectives, it it gets a bit. It, it's a it's an area where there are a lot more challenges to ensure that you you behave ethically. I, I'm only saying that having seen what's happened. I yeah. was never that. I didn't find too many challenges <laughs> in my day.
0: How has banking changed over years? Because you mentioned back in your day, do you think it's the regulations have changed? I don't think it's
1: so much backing in in my day as much as the organisation I was working in. It was mm -hmm. a very small organisation. Everyone was very transparent with each other so you could call out things you thought weren't quite right. One of the weaknesses in the banking, uh, in the big four, is that they're so large Mm -hmm. and there are so many layers that there's not the same... Um, appetite for calling out so you get behavior where there's a bit of a turning the blind eye and and it'll only work if you do call out because we all have areas where we might think is this the right thing and someone says I don't think so I mean you've got to ask and you've got to question and I think in big organizations asking and questioning is a bit you know you've got to get on with the job (laughs) so it doesn't tend to be encouraged quite so much.
0: So transparency is very important. I think transparency
1: is very important, but openness and dialogue as much as transparency, because the banks have focused quite a bit on transparency to try and have more data, Mm. collect uh, information, but they don't seem to have a culture where they readily uh, people call each other out on. I'm not so sure about that. That's got a bit of a smell about it. I mean, very simple language that is a little bit not so evident.
0: So that sounds like it is a hugely cultural issue. Are there any tips that you can give in terms of navigating or fostering that kind of culture where people aren't afraid to speak out? Well,
1: I think only openness and speaking out. And saying it has a bad culture sounds like people are bad. There are very good people in a very closed culture, Mm -hmm. which has got into practices where they haven't actually aired issues they felt doubt about. And once the doubt subsides and you just get on with it, you go back to, who thought we, this was the right thing? If somebody spoke up in the beginning mm. and expressed their doubt, it can be dealt with and considered and then you see a perspective and then you, you don't drift into something which really isn't the right thing. Mm.
0: That's a very good point. Thank you. Apart from transparency, do you have any other guiding principles that, you, that have helped you to stay on the right path in your career? And secondly, have they changed from your early career to now?
1: I don't think they've changed from my early career to now. I've probably become more uh, outwardly spoken and probably more capable of making my point. That's, that's mm-hmm. the only thing that's happened. Otherwise, I would have been always making my case, but probably not very effectively. I always had a, um, a desire to make a contribution. And it was a contribution, not just to where you were working, but to broader society. So when I went into banking, it didn't sound, it wasn't quite, um, my mother was a social worker, my father was a lawyer, he was always working for people who couldn't pay. So I felt, oh, I'm in this field of banking. But I really believed that banking was an essential, and I still do, component of uh, the movement of money, correct investment decisions, assessment of, of those—it was—it was an essential element for a productive economy. So Absolutely. I believed that, and I still do believe that, and that gave me a purpose of I'm playing an important role in making a contribution to society,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that—that—that uh, that, that was my guiding principle. Always thinking, am I making a contribution to society, or? Is this the right thing to do? So I always wanted to do that. That, that was my goal.
0: Mm. And you certainly have.
1: Well, i <laughs> it kept, kept uh, on as a goal. So it made it easier making decisions if you found what is the purpose of what I'm doing here. It's got to be something that's doing good, not just earning me an income.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So with such an extensive career and a purpose-filled career, Uh, You have no doubt had to navigate the many ups and downs. So would you be willing to share with us a time that you've had to navigate an ethically challenging situation? And what was the story behind it? How did you work through it? And most importantly, what did you learn?
1: I don't remember an ethically challenging situation where I was challenged as much as people working for me Mm -hmm. were contemplating... um, what they do and we had a situation where we'd done a transaction with the New South Wales Treasury and they hadn't entered in some uh, one of the payments so it was a derivative transaction where you have you know payments coming and going over a period of seven years or something and uh, one of my people came to me and said, oh it looks like the New South Wales Treasury Corps hasn't entered in this payment of or they, the, the New South Wales Treasury Corps paid us a million dollars or something, and it's not one of the payments that they needed to make us. Mm-hmm. And so they came to me to ask, what do you do? I asked, Will you bring them up and tell them that they've put it in their system incorrectly? You know, it was, wasn't was as, wasn't as though it was really an ethical issue, but it was yeah. as if anyone would be contemplating not... Uh, uh, approaching them and saying, look, you've paid us and you you shouldn't have paid us. But you find people say, this is going straight to my bottom line, they won't notice. Um, I mean, it's alien to me, but the fact that somebody came to ask me instead of just doing that, um, I think it's those decisions that where sometimes it usually is a mistake where somebody turns a blind eye or if it's in their favour, instead of saying, look, I don't think that's quite right. They're very ready to call out of it's against them but they've got to also call out if it's not against them.
0: And those were with the people that were working for you at the time is that correct?
1: Yes Yes. and it's not as though they said oh we could keep it or uh, they just said oh we thought we'd just check and I'm thinking Uh, well you didn't really need to check.
0: Yeah that's the thing I think in situations where the decision seems quite straightforward and perhaps in this scenario they definitely were doing it more as a process check rather than you know they didn't know right from wrong. I, I think it's quite obvious that it
1: might it might have been processed, but we were very uh, I just thought it was uh, I mean, you're probably right. it was it was a reasonable thing to do because mm-hmm. you you think, well, uh, what are we measured on here? We're measured on um, uh, the bottom line and another area where the corporate tax rates were coming down very rapidly and if you could defer tax, mm. to defer your income to the next year, you were paying ten percent less tax. I mean, there were very significant reductions in the company tax rate, and the um, the I, I was asked by the the company, well, because in in derivative transactions, you have all sorts of cash flows that move around, so you could fiddle around with those cash flows. And I was asked, look, you, you have created, just by the natural flows of your business, mm. quite a lot of deferring of income. And I said, yes, that's the way it goes because you make payments annually. And They said, could you do more of those? And I said, no, I couldn't. <laughs> I was very unpopular. I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not running my business as a tax business. This is a natural consequence. It'll happen or it might not happen. And that's a bonus maybe but that's it. And that was quite, at a very senior level, I had to just say, I'm not doing this.
0: Yeah, amazing. Do you think that that kind of decision and stance helped you in terms of your relationship with customers?
1: Oh, I think so, yes. I think I was I was definitely uh, totally trusted. Um, so there were occasions when somebody had, in foreign exchange, they had a conflict with a customer, and they asked me to sort it out for them, and I said, "Well, I'm not sorting it out unless I know the facts." So I'd always, I said, "I don't, I don't think that." I'm sorry, I don't side with you on that occasion. So I suppose mm-hmm. it's those things where you just, you, you, you're making your judgments that are yeah. based on what you think is the right thing to do, not the financial impact.
0: Yeah, and I definitely think that following a more ethical and moral standard. Does usually equate to better outcomes for everyone? Oh, in the long run, it yeah. certainly does.
1: Yes, because if we, if we'd run the business for tax reasons, it wouldn't have been a business. Mm. I mean, it would have. Um, how could you inspire people to just, uh, you know, dud the tax office? Yeah. I don't know. I've never been very interested in doing that.
0: Mm. So, Jillian. Uh, You are a strong advocate for diversity and having more women take up leadership roles in large organisations. In fact, you co-authored a book called The CEO Kit for Attracting and Retaining Female Talent. Do you think that there is a relationship between increased diversity and greater ethical practices?
1: Well, I do think uh, if you don't have diversity, you get common behaviour that is harder to challenge. Everyone just becomes a little bit more uniform. Whereas when you have diversity, you do get different perspectives and you create more doubt. Because you say, I don't know about that. How would you do that? This is in, in providing solutions to major problems. If you're saying, how would we do this? Just the diversity of, of thinking does help solve those problems. And I think that diversity also helps uh, reflect better the values of society because you've got more different people coming from different uh, perspectives. So I think it does. not, not as a, I've always believed in it more as this um, cerebral problem-solving capacity mm. was enhanced, but I also think it gives you a stronger foundation to stay in touch with the community and the broad population.
0: Definitely. And in mentioning um, community, I definitely wanted to bring up Your role as chair of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation from 2011 to 2017. So the corporation is essentially a green bank set up to support investments in clean energy. You, more than anyone else, would be aware of the climate debate that has divided politicians, businesses and everyday people. So it is my personal opinion that this goes beyond just environmental concerns um, and is a deeply ethical one. Would you agree with that?
1: I would agree with that. with the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, I I really took it on because I had banking experience and I believed in its purpose mm-hmm. and I had to write a review of whether this was a sensible idea. So once I'd written the review and seen the barriers to making these investments happen, then I really did believe in it and so mm-hmm. that comes back to when you believe in something, then we we... We uh, set it up to run it efficiently, have processes that were very um, sound, and when the government changed, they said, well, it's our policy to abolish this. I, I said, well, that is the government policy, but until the legislation changes, we have a responsibility to do our job. Mm-hmm. So we basically just kept on doing our job. It happened to be the government policy to abolish us, but they never got the support in both houses to do so but it it was really still focusing on the purpose of what it was doing and when i finished there they had um an event there was an event in parliament house a sort of the renewable energy event and the number of people who came up and said you know thank you for holding our hand in the dark hours and there really were incredibly dark hours where the whole industry couldn't get financed, didn't know where the government was heading, didn't know if the renewable energy target was going to be abolished. So they were, I feel very proud that, you know, I did hold their hand in the dark hours because there would have been incredibly dark hours and a lot of industries falling by the wayside when everyone recognises we need them now. But, you know, you can't stop and start these things. You've got to have a long-term vision. And so I am very disappointed that the government doesn't have a long-term vision in that regard.
0: Do you think that that's just a government stance, or do you think it's echoed by businesses? Is there a shift? Oh no, that I find seeing? businesses
1: very supportive. They just like a bit more guidance where mm. the government doesn't um, almost undermine the initiatives they're taking. Interesting.
0: Thank you for covering your views on the role and responses of government and businesses in tackling what I believe is one of the biggest ethical challenges we currently face. Now, Gillian, what about the individual? What do you think is the biggest ethical challenge that future leaders face?
1: Well, I think it's, again, keeping in touch with what your responsibility is in the roles you have. So if you're a leader, you're responsible for setting certain standards and behaving in a certain manner and and building an organisation which will endure. And if that is your responsibility, then the ethical framework is pretty obvious.
0: What are some practical ways in which we as a next generation can best equip ourselves to actually step up to those challenges?
1: Well, I think we have to at all levels learn to challenge and learn to challenge well. So you get the facts, Mm -hmm. you don't challenge aggressively, you challenge with curiosity, discovery, all of the fundamentals that you know are important to your own growth and the growth of the organisation. And it's it's a lot of that challenging when we were doing the um APRA inquiry into the CBA it was the absence of that there were a number of people we interviewed who said yes I wasn't very comfortable with that and I said well why didn't you speak up oh it wasn't it wasn't encouraged uh, to challenge other business heads so there was a bit of you know, don't criticise my business and I won't criticise your business. And I really do think you have to encourage people to just observe and comment on other businesses within an organisation, not just their own. And that's where the leader can encourage that sort of open debate. Mm. So if they see something, they can say any any comments you've got about their business, It's it's certainly not the norm. So it's... It was easier to do in Bankers Trust when I was there because we were much smaller, we all grew up from starting it and so you knew the businesses pretty well and you knew the people and there was a very open culture. Um, but, you know, once you become big and established and you've got a huge part of the market, it's more like running a machine rather than always dreaming out how you're going to leverage the small skills and intelligence you have to make the thing profitable. And I think that... Uh, that sense of discovery of how are we going to, one, do this better, how are we going to um, beat the competition? That's in the nature of the service you're providing, not just how are we going to maintain the income on this business. It's all to do with a little bit more um, liveliness and the thinking around the way you're going about your job Mm -hmm. because it makes it more interesting for the participants and it also keeps you alert and alive as to, well, what are we doing now? How could this be different rather than, all I've got to do is keep on the treadmill.
0: Yeah, and it goes back to what we were talking about at the very start of this podcast: is that culture of speaking up, keeping mm. on your toes, and really questioning things around you. And I think yeah, that's... and and
1: doing it in a manner where you're comfortable doing it, and you're when you see the reaction is bad, mm. maybe you change your approach, and you can even say, "Look, I, I, I don't that wasn't very well received. Why?" You know, to just learn how to do it. Because some people just don't like being challenged and they should be challenged Mm. and they must be challenged, but you have to pick the path. You don't want to embarrass people, but you do want to say, I feel this would be better if we all... You know, so you've always got to be thinking how it can...
0: People skills. yeah. Yeah, how you
1: can be more productive yourself and how the particular person, I mean, who even you're reporting to could be more... feed more positively into that productivity because these days you usually have 360 degrees and you get a chance to say look I find when I challenge things he or she's uncomfortable with that and I don't don't want to make them feel uncomfortable but I want the challenge to continue so you, you have to be I think comfortable in challenging and comfortable that you don't try to be something you're not so if people say oh you've just got to be aggressive about it if you're not Comfortable being aggressive, just find another way. I mean, words and language are far more effective than aggression. You you can just... in communication.
0: Everyone has different communication and leadership styles as well. Yes, yes. So you mentioned that, you know, even... It kind of goes back to a quote, like, you know, speak up even when your voice shakes. And you were saying that... Totally. Sometimes you might be the only person who holds this opinion or this view and you're trying to influence everyone else. And if you
1: can't kind of get the ideas together, just say simple things like, I
0: don't know about
1: this. Mm. I've got an uncomfortable feeling about this. I don't know why or is this going the right way or does anyone else feel this is not quite right or Mm -hmm. it's those... It doesn't have to be you've got all the answers. Yeah, you're, you're the philosopher, and you're the uh, you know you're the moral compass. Mm-hmm. It, you, you know, you you want to to express your own way of I don't know about that, and then someone says, Yeah, I feel a bit uncomfortable about that. Oh no, that's ridiculous. Blah blah. You know, you have a conversation, and you end up somewhere mm-hmm. where you um, you're probably in a better place as a result of that.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. It's Mm. your own style of communicating that, the subtle questioning and just causing causing a conversation, I guess.
1: I think it's exactly that, causing a conversation, because too many people will say, oh, I didn't want to be seen as this, I didn't want to be seen as that. Mm. I mean, that is very... That's a real weakness that has to be overcome because if you're worrying about how you're seen get your facts, work out why you feel something or why you just think something and express it in a way where you're comfortable. And it it doesn't have to be all that philosophical and highbrow. It just has to be, I don't know, I feel uncomfortable. It's something simple. Hmm. And if those comments were made more easily along the way, you'd find people would say, would you feel more comfortable if we put it that way or we did that? Or in the documentation we did that, yes, I think so. Or, you know, it's, it's often a simple solution. Mm. You'd be saying, do they understand that this is this and that? Well, we can put that in the in the proposal letter. You know, you can, You do find even in these prospectuses, the number i poured over and you say, is everyone... You get a bit dull by reading the same thing and you say, everyone knows what that is. And then you say, look, sh- shouldn't we... Sometimes it's not clearly understood that this can be an outcome. I think we'll spell that out. And all of that helps... It might help legally later, but that's not really why you're doing it, in my view. You're doing it so that people can read it and question and not just go on faith and trust.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Thank you so much. I think that's pretty much the four questions questions I had. <laughs> but thank you. That was really insightful and I um, really enjoyed your, you know, your stories and your pieces of wisdom that you were able to share with us.
1: Well, hopefully you can edit something out of
0: that. uh... No, it was great. Thank you so much.